Chapter Ten of the Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: The Moon Pool. Da Costa, who had come aboard unnoticed by either of us, now tapped me on the arm. "Doctor Goodwin," he said, "can I see you in my cabin, sir?" At last, then, he was going to speak. I followed him. "Doctor." he said, when we had entered. This is a very strange thing that has happened to Olaf. Very strange. And the natives of Ponape, they have been very much excited lately. Of what they fear, I know nothing, nothing. Again that quick, furtive crossing of himself. But this I have to tell you. There came to me from Ranaloa last month a man, a Russian, a doctor like you. His name, it was Merkinov. I take him to Ponape, and the natives there, they will not take him to the Nanmatel where he wished to go, no. So I take him. We leave him in a boat, with much instrument carefully tied up. I leave him there with the boat and the food. He tell me to tell no one and pay me not to. But you are a friend, and Olaf, he depend much upon you, and so I tell you, sir. You know nothing more than this, da Costa? I asked. Nothing of another expedition? No! He shook his head vehemently. Nothing more! Hear the name Throckmorton while you were there? I persisted. No! His eyes were steady as he answered, but the pallor had crept again into his face. I was not so sure. But if he knew more than he had told me, why was he afraid to speak? My anxiety deepened, and later I sought relief from it by repeating the conversation to O'Keefe. A Russian, eh? he said. Well, they can be damned nice, or damned otherwise. Considering what you did for me, I hope I can look him over before the dolphin shows up. Next morning we raised Ponape without further incident, and before noon the Suwarna and the Brunhilde had dropped anchor in the harbor. Upon the excitement and manifest dread of the natives, when we sought among them for carriers and workmen to accompany us, I will not dwell. It is enough to say that no payment we offered could induce a single one of them to go to the non-metal, nor would they say why. Finally, it was agreed that the Brunhilde should be left in charge of a half-breed Chinaman, whom both da Costa and Huldrickson knew and trusted. We piled her longboat up with my instruments and food and camping equipment. The Suwarna took us around to the Metalanum Harbor, and there, with the tops of ancient sea-walls deep in the blue water beneath us, and the ruins looming up out of the mangroves, a scant mile from us, left us. Then, with Huldrickson manipulating our small sail and Larry at the rudder, we rounded the titanic wall that swept down into the depths, and turned at last into the canal that Throckmorton, on his map, had marked as that which, running between the frowning Nantowach and its satellite islet, Tau, led straight to the gate of the place of ancient mysteries. And as we entered that channel, we were enveloped by a silence, a silence so intense, so weighted, that it seemed to have substance, an alien silence that clung and stifled and still stood aloof from us, the living. It was a stillness, such as might follow the long tramping of millions into the grave. It was paradoxical, as it may be, filled with the withdrawal of life. 
Standing down in the chambered depths of the Great Pyramid, I had known something of such silence, but never such intensity as this. Larry felt it too, and I saw him look at me askance. If Olaf, sitting in the bow, felt it too, he gave no sign. His blue eyes, with again the glint of ice within them, watched the channel before us. As we passed, there arose upon our left sheer walls of black basalt blocks, cyclopean, towering fifty feet or more, broken here and there by the sinking of their deep foundations. In front of us the mangroves widened out and filled the canal. On our right the lesser walls of Tau, somber blocks, smooth and squared, and set with a cold, mathematical nicety that filled me with vague awe, slipped by. Through breaks I caught glimpses of dark ruins, and of great fallen stones, that seemed to crouch and menace us as we passed. Somewhere there, hidden, were the seven globes that poured the moon-fire down upon the moon-pool. Now we were among the mangroves, and, sailed down, the three of us pushed and pulled the boat through their tangled roots and branches. The noise of our passing split the silence like a profanation, and from the ancient bastions came murmurs, forbidding, strangely sinister. And now we were through, floating on a little open space of shadow-filled water. Before us lifted the gateway of Nantawach, gigantic, broken, incredibly old. Shattered portals through which had passed men and women of earth's dawn, old, with a weight of years that pressed leadenly upon the eyes that looked upon it, and yet was in some curious, indefinable way menacingly defiant. Beyond the gate, back from the portals, stretched a flight of enormous basalt slabs, a giant stairway indeed, and from each side of it marched the high walls that were the dweller's pathway. None of us spoke as we grounded the boat and dragged it upon a half-submerged pier. And when we did speak, it was in whispers. "'What next?' asked Larry. "'I think we ought to take a look around,' I replied in the same low tones. "'We'll climb the wall here and take a flash about. The whole place ought to be plain as day from that height.' Huldrickson, his blue eyes alert, nodded. With the greatest difficulty we clambered up the broken blocks. To the east and south of us, set like children's blocks in the midst of the sapphire sea, lay dozens of islets, none of them covering more than two square miles of surface, each of them a perfect square or oblong within its protecting walls. On none was there a sign of life, save for a few great birds that hovered here and there, and gulls dipping in the blue waves beyond. We turned our gaze upon the island on which we stood. It was, I estimated, about three-quarters of a mile square. The sea-wall enclosed it. It was really an enormous basalt-sided open cube, and within it two other open cubes. The enclosure between the first and second wall was stone-paved, with here and there a broken pillar and long stone benches. The hibiscus, the aloe-tree, and a number of small shrubs had found place, but seemed only to intensify its stark loneliness. "'Wonder where the Russian can be?' asked Larry. I shook my head. There was no sign of life here. Had Merikinov gone, or had the dweller taken him, too? 
Whatever had happened, there was no trace of him below us or on any of the islets within our range of vision. We scrambled down the side of the gateway. Olaf looked at me wistfully. We start the search now, Olaf, I said. And first, O'Keefe, let us see whether the gray stone is really here. After that, we will set up camp, and while I unpack, you and Olaf search the island. It won't take long. Larry gave a look at his service automatic and grinned. Lead on, Macduff, he said. We made our way up the steps, through the outer enclosures and into the central square. I confess to a fire of scientific curiosity and eagerness tinged with a dread that O'Keefe's analysis might be true. Would we find the moving slab? And if so, would it be as Throckmorton had described? If so, then even Larry would have to admit that here was something that the theories of gases and luminous emanations would not explain, and the first test of the whole amazing story would be passed. But, if not, and there before us, the faintest tinge of gray setting it apart from its neighboring blocks of basalt, was the moon door. There was no mistaking it. This was, in very deed, the portal through which Throckmorton had seen pass that glorious dreadful apparition he called the Dweller. At its base was the curious, seemingly polished, cup-like depression within which, my lost friend had told me, the opening door swung. What was that portal, more enigmatic than was ever Sphinx? And what lay beyond it? What did that smooth stone, whose wan deadness whispered of ages, old corridors of time opening out into alien, unimaginable vistas, hide? It had cost the world of science Throckmorton's great brain, as it had cost Throckmorton those he loved. It had drawn me to it in search of Throckmorton, and its shadow had fallen upon the soul of Olaf the Norseman, and upon what thousands upon thousands more, I wondered, since the brains that had conceived it had vanished with their secret knowledge. What lay beyond it? I stretched out a shaking hand and touched the surface of the slab. A faint thrill passed through my hand and arm, oddly unfamiliar and as oddly unpleasant, as of electric contact holding the very essence of cold. O'Keefe, watching, imitated my action. As his fingers rested on the stone, his face filled with astonishment. "'It's the door?' he asked. I nodded. There was a low whistle from him, and he pointed up toward the top of the gray stone. I followed the gesture, and saw, above the moon door and on each side of it, two gently curving bosses of rock, perhaps a foot in diameter. "'The moon door's keys,' I said. "'It begins to look so.' answered Larry. If we can find them, he added. There's nothing we can do till moonrise, I replied, and we've none too much time to prepare as it is. Come. A little later we were beside our boat. We lightered it, set up the tent, and as it was now but a short hour to sundown, I bade them leave me and make their search. They went off together, and I busied myself with opening some of the paraphernalia I had brought with me. First of all, I took out the two Becquerel ray condensers that I had bought in Sydney. Their lenses would collect and intensify to the fullest extent any light directed upon them. I had found them most useful in making spectroscopic analysis of luminous vapors, 
and I knew that at Yerke's observatory splendid results had been obtained from them in collecting the diffused radiance of the nebulae for the same purpose. If my theory of the gray slab's mechanism were correct, it was practically certain that with the satellite only a few nights past the full, we could concentrate enough light on the bosses to open the rock. And as the ray streams through the seven globes described by Throckmorton would be too weak to energize the pool, we could enter the chamber free from any fear of encountering its tenant, make our preliminary observations, and go forth before the moon had dropped so far that the concentration in the condensers would fall below that necessary to keep the portal from closing. I took out a small spectroscope, and a few other instruments for the analysis of certain light manifestations and the testing of metal and liquid. Finally, I put aside my emergency medical kit. I had hardly finished examining and adjusting these before O'Keefe and Huldrickson returned. They reported signs of a camp at least ten days old beside the northern wall of the outer court, but beyond that no evidence of others beyond ourselves on Nantawach. We prepared supper, ate and talked a little, but for the most part were silent. Even Larry's high spirits were not in evidence. Half a dozen times I saw him take out his automatic and look it over. He was more thoughtful than I had ever seen him. Once he went into the tent, rummaged about a bit, and brought out another revolver, which he said he had got from DaCosta, and a half-dozen clips of cartridges. He passed the gun over to Olaf. At last a glow in the southeast heralded the rising moon. I picked up my instruments and the medical kit. Larry and Olaf shouldered each short ladder that was part of my equipment, and with our electric flashes pointing the way, walked up the great stairs, through the enclosures, and straight to the gray stone. By this time the moon had risen and its clipped light shone full upon the slab. I saw faint gleams pass over it as of fleeting phosphorescence, but so faint were they that I could not be sure of the truth of my observation. We set the ladders in place. Olaf I assigned to stand before the door and watch for the first signs of its opening, if open it should. The becquerels were set within three-inch tripods, whose feet I had equipped with vacuum rings to enable them to hold fast to the rock. I scaled one ladder and fastened a condenser over the boss, descended, sent Larry up to watch it, and, ascending the second ladder, rapidly fixed the other in its place. Then, with O'Keefe watchful on his perch, I on mine, and Olaf's eyes fixed upon the moon door, we began our vigil. Suddenly there was an exclamation from Larry. Seven little lights are beginning to glow on this stone!' he cried. But I had already seen those beneath my lens begin to gleam out with a silvery luster. Swiftly the rays within the condenser began to thicken and increase, and as they did so the seven small circles waxed like stars growing out of the dusk, and with a queer—curdled is the best word I can find to define it—radiance entirely strange to me. Beneath me I heard a faint, sighing murmur, and then the voice of Huldrickson. It opens. The stone turns. I began to climb down the ladder. Again came Olaf's voice. The stone, it is open. And then a shriek, a wail of blended anguish and pity, of rage and despair, 
and the sound of swift footsteps racing through the wall beneath me. I dropped to the ground. The moon door was wide open, and through it I caught a glimpse of a corridor filled with a faint, pearly, vaporous light, like earliest misty dawn. But of Olaf I could see nothing, and even as I stood, gaping, from behind me came the sharp crack of a rifle. The glass of the condenser at Larry's side flew into fragments. He dropped swiftly to the ground, the automatic in his hand flashed once, twice, into the darkness. And the moon-door began to pivot slowly, slowly, back into its place. I rushed toward the turning stone with the wild idea of holding it open. As I thrust my hands against it, there came at my back a snarl and an oath, and Larry staggered under the impact of a body that had flung itself straight at his throat. He reeled at the lip of the shallow cup at the base of the slab, slipped upon its polished curve, fell and rolled with that which had attacked him, kicking and writhing, straight through the narrowing portal into the passage. Forgetting all else, I sprang to his aid. As I leaped, I felt the closing edge of the moon-door graze my side. Then, as Larry raised a fist, brought it down upon the temple of the man who had grappled with him, and rose from the twitching body unsteadily to his feet, I heard, shuddering past me, a mournful whisper, spun about as though some giant's hand had whirled me. The end of the corridor no longer opened out into the moonlit square of ruined Nantawach. It was barred by a solid mass of glimmering stone. The moon-door had closed. O'Keefe took a stumbling step toward the barrier behind us. There was no mark of juncture with the shining walls. The slab fitted into the sides as closely as a mosaic. "'It's shut all right,' said Larry. "'But if there's a way in, there's a way out. Anyway, Doc, we're right in the pew we've been heading for, so why worry?' He grinned at me cheerfully. The man on the floor groaned, and he dropped to his knees beside him. Marakinov! he cried. At my exclamation he moved aside, turning the face so I could see it. It was clearly Russian, and just as clearly its possessor was one of unusual force and intellect. The strong, massive brow with orbital ridge unusually developed, the dominant, high-bridge nose the straight lips with their more than suggestion of latent cruelty, and the strong lines of the jaw beneath a black, pointed beard, all gave evidence that here was a personality beyond the ordinary. "'Couldn't be anybody else,' said Larry, breaking in on my thoughts. "'He must have been watching us over there from the Chautelure's vault all the time.' Swiftly he ran practiced hands over his body, then stood erect holding out to me two wicked-looking magazine pistols and a knife. "'They got one of my bullets through his right forearm, too,' he said. "'Just a flesh wound, but it made him drop his rifle. Some arsenal, our little Russian scientist, what?' I opened my medical kit. The wound was a slight one, and Larry stood looking on as I bandaged it. "'Got another one of those condensers?' he asked suddenly. "'And do you suppose Olaf will know enough to use it?' Larry, I answered, Olaf's not outside. He's in here somewhere. His jaw dropped. The hell you say, he whispered. Did you hear him shriek when the stone opened? I asked. I heard him yell, yes, he said, but I didn't know what was the matter. And then this wildcat jumped me. 
He paused, and his eyes widened. "'Which way did he go?' he asked swiftly. I pointed down the faintly glowing passage. "'There's only one way,' I said. "'Watch that bird close,' hissed O'Keefe, pointing to Marikinov, and pistol in hand stretched his long legs and raced away. I looked down at the Russian. His eyes were open, and he reached out a hand to me. I lifted him to his feet. "'I have heard,' he said. "'We follow, quick. If you will take my arm, please. I am shaken yet, yes.' I gripped his shoulder without a word, and the two of us set off down the corridor after O'Keefe. Marikinov was gasping, and his weight pressed upon me heavily, but he moved with all the will and strength that were in him. As we ran, I took hasty note of the tunnel. Its sides were smooth and polished, and the light seemed to come not from their surfaces, but from far within them, giving to the walls an elusive aspect of distance and depth, rendering them, in a peculiarly weird way, spacious. The passage turned, twisted, ran down, turned again. It came to me that the light that illumined the tunnel was given out by tiny points deep within the stone sprang from the points rippingly and spread upon their polished faces. There was a cry from Larry far ahead. Olaf! I gripped Marikinov's arm closer and we sped on. Now we were coming fast to the end of the passage. Before us was a high arch, and through it I glimpsed a dim, shifting luminosity as of mist filled with rainbows. We reached the portal and I looked into a chamber that might have been transported from that enchanted palace of the Jean King that rises beyond the magic mountains of Kaf. Before me stood O'Keefe, and a dozen feet in front of him, Huldrickson, with something clasped tightly in his arms. The Norseman's feet were at the verge of a shining, silvery lip of stone, within whose oval lay a blue pool and down upon this pool, staring upward like a gigantic eye, fell seven pillars of phantom light, one of them amethyst, one of rose, another of white, a fourth of blue, and three of emerald, of silver, and of amber. They fell each upon the azure surface, and I knew that these were the seven streams of radiance within which the dweller took shape now but pale ghosts of their brilliancy when the full energy of the moon-stream raced through them. Huldrickson bent and placed on the shining silver lip of the pool that which he held, and I saw that it was the body of a child. He set it there so gently, bent over the side, and thrust a hand down into the water. And as he did so, he moaned and lurched against the little body that lay before him. Instantly the form moved and slipped over the verge into the blue. Huldrickson threw his body over the stone, hands clutching, arms thrust deep down, and from his lips issued a long-drawn, heart-shriveling wail of pain and of anguish that held in it nothing human. Close on its wake came a cry from Marikinov. "'Catch him!' shouted the Russian. "'Drag him back! Quick!' He leaped forward, but before he could half clear that distance O'Keefe had leaped too, had caught the Norseman by the shoulders and toppled him backward, where he lay whimpering and sobbing. And as I rushed behind Marikinov, 
I saw Larry lean over the lip of the pool and cover his eyes with a shaking hand, saw the Russian peer into it with real pity in his cold eyes. Then I stared down myself into the moon pool, and there, sinking, was a little maid whose dead face and fixed, terror-filled eyes looked straight into mine, and ever sinking slowly, slowly vanished. And I knew that this was Olaf's Frida, his beloved Yinling. But where was the mother, and where had Olaf found his babe? The Russian was first to speak. "'You have nitroglycerin there, yes?' he asked, pointing toward my medical kit that I had gripped unconsciously and carried with me during the mad rush down the passage. I nodded and drew it out. "'Hypodermic,' he ordered next, curtly took the syringe, filled it accurately with its one one-hundredth of a grain dosage, and leaned over Huldrickson. He rolled up the sailor's sleeves halfway to the shoulder. The arms were white, with somewhat of that weird semi-translucence that I had seen on Throckmorton's breast where a tendril of the dweller had touched him, and his hands were of the same whiteness, like a baroque pearl. Above the line of white, Marikinov thrust the needle. He will need all his heart can do, he said to me. Then he reached down into a belt about his waist and drew from it a small, flat flask of what seemed to be lead. He opened it and let a few drops of its contents fall on each arm of the Norwegian. The liquid sparkled and instantly began to spread over the skin much as oil or gasoline dropped on water does, only far more rapidly and as it spread it drew a sparkling film over the marbled flesh and little wisps of vapor rose from it. The Norseman's mighty chest heaved with agony. His hands clenched. The Russian gave a grunt of satisfaction at this, dropped a little more of the liquid, and then, watching closely, grunted again and leaned back. Huldrickson's labored breathing ceased. His head dropped upon Larry's knee, and from his arms and hands the whiteness swiftly withdrew. Marikinov arose and contemplated us, almost benevolently. "'He will all right be in five minutes,' he said. "'I know. I do it to pay for that shot of mine, and also because we will need him. Yes.' He turned to Larry. "'You have a punch like a mule-kick, my young friend,' he said. "'Sometime you pay me for that too, eh?' He smiled, and the quality of the grimace was not exactly reassuring. Larry looked him over quizzically. "'Yar Marikinov, of course,' he said. The Russian nodded, betraying no surprise at the recognition. "'And you?' he asked. "'Lieutenant O'Keefe, of the Royal Flying Corps,' replied Larry, saluting. "'And this gentleman is Dr. Walter T. Goodwin.' Marikinov's face brightened. "'The American botanist?' he queried. I nodded. "'Ah!' cried Marikinov eagerly. But this is fortunate. Long I have desired to meet you. Your work, for an American, is most excellent, surprising. But you are wrong in your theory of the development of the angiospermae from Psychododia dicotensis. Da, all wrong. I was interrupting him with considerable heat, for my conclusions from the fossil Psychododia I knew to be my greatest triumph, when Larry broke in upon me rudely. "'Say,' he spluttered, "'am I crazy, or are you? 
What in damnation kind of a place and time is this to start an argument like that? Angiospermae, is it? exclaimed Larry. Hell! Merikinov again regarded him with that irritating air of benevolence. You have not the scientific mind, young friend, he said. The punch, yes, but so has the mule. You must learn that the only fact is important. Not you, not me, not this, he pointed to Huldrickson, or its sorrows. The only fact, whatever it is, is real, yes. But, he turned to me, another time. Huldrickson interrupted him. The big seaman had risen stiffly to his feet and stood with Larry's arm supporting him. He stretched out his hands to me. I saw her, he whispered. I saw mine Frida when the stone swung, and she lay there, just at my feet. I picked her up and saw that mine Frida was dead. But I hoped, and I thought maybe mine Helma was somewhere here, too, so I ran with mine yinling here. His voice broke. I thought maybe she was not dead, he went on. And when I saw that, he pointed to the moon pool, and I thought I would bathe her face and she might live again, and when I dipped my hands within, the life left them, and the cold, deadly cold, ran up through them into my heart. And mine Frida, she fell. He covered his eyes, and dropping his head on O'Keefe's shoulder, stood, racked by sobs that seemed to tear at his very soul. End of chapter 10